are in this series, like Joe said, Countercultural Convictions. My name's Josh. I'm the pastor here, and I get to walk us through the topic of sex. So just to kind of uh, set expectations, I was in this kind of public speaking class one time, and the guy gave an illustration. He sat us all down, and he said, all right. He gave us a blank sheet of paper and said, all right, be creative. Uh, and we all kind of just couldn't figure out what to do. He said, be creative. And then he gave us some parameters, like, all right, use this poem, use this uh, topic, think of this audience now within that framework, be creative. So as we talk about sex, there's a lot of places our minds can go. Like, I wonder what's going to be talked about. I'll just tell you what we're not talking about today. It's not a how-to manual. It's not even going to really land the plane much in the actual act of sexual intimacy within marriage. Because as I think about the series, Countercultural Convictions, it's about how do we as the church navigate a world where we are to be distinct and unique and different from the world, but still involved and actively engaged in the world. So how do we as the church think about sex? How does sex uh, get related to within the church? How do we talk about sex and how do we uh, hold sex as far as our posture and our convictions and the way we talk about it? That's what this is going to be about. It's going to be about how should we, the church, be different when it comes to the area of sex. And it's just, last week was about gender and here's what's different between last week and this week. Uh, The sin in my own life in this area makes this a much more humbling message to talk about. I've never struggled with any sort of gender issue. I've struggled mightily since I was a young boy with sexual sin and all that goes with that. And now we've got to stand on God's word and not limp up here and say, well, maybe, but authoritatively say, this is what God says, but also graciously says, he also realizes I'm not unique in this room. We're all a bunch of sexual sinners here together to hear from the God who created sex to reshape our mind, and to hopefully leave us here a little better off than when we came in. Like, here's our big idea. Sex is a sacred gift that is to reflect God's creational design and point to God's redemptive heart. If we could get a little bit closer to believing that this morning, that's a win in my book. That's what I was praying this morning. A little bit closer to God's intention for sex. That it points to his creational design, but it also shows his redemptive heart. So that's what we're going to walk towards today. We've got three questions. What is sex according to the Bible? What is sex according to culture? And then how are we going to navigate this? How are we going to counter culture in the area of sex? So that's what we're going to do. I want to just uh, pause and just quiet our hearts for a second. So if you could, bow your heads, close your eyes. And just give the Spirit a moment to just prepare our hearts. God, thank you for the gift of sex. Thank you for speaking on sex. And thank you for redeeming sex for those of us who have complicated it. Uh, And thank you for walking with us in the process of being redeemed and made new even if not especially in this area. So God, give us your, your grace and your truth this morning. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Everyone said amen. So first, what does the Bible say 
about sex. What is sex according to the Bible? Here's what we could talk about. We could talk about the pleasures of sex. There's a whole book, Song of Solomon, where it walks through a few sort of interactions with husbands and wife. It's very graphic. My wife and I went through this study when we were engaged, and it was wonderful. I'm like, wow, that's what we get to look forward to. It is amazing, but we're not walking through Song of Solomon. We could talk about the cultural mandate behind sex, which I think presses on our cultural moment as much as anything, that you are to be fruitful and multiply. Sex is supposed to have reproductive abilities to it and purposes behind it. But we're not going to spend a ton of time on that. We could look at the Bible for wisdom in navigating sex, which I think it offers a lot. We could talk about just prohibitions and all that the Bible says, thou shall not. And we'll hit on that. But at its core, what does the Bible say about sex? And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to basically, I like, love to do weddings. I love to officiate weddings. And this is kind of the main message I give at most weddings I get to do because it's what the Bible says. It's what Jimmy just read. What does the Bible say about sex? Genesis 1 and 2 is where sex gets introduced. And here's the context. God creates everything. But he doesn't just create everything. He has this sort of poetic rhythm to how he creates. On this day, he created this. On this day, he created this. On this day, he created this. And then on the fourth day, he starts to feel these things. And then he feels the sea. And then he feels the sky. And then he feels the earth. And as you look back and kind of zoom out at creation, God is creating these contrasting, beautiful things that go together. He creates land and sea, heaven and earth, night and day. And one of my friends, Josh Butler, who's an author, made the observations that where those things come together in creation are the most beautiful places on earth. Land and sea is the beach. God did that. Why can none of us afford to live on the beach? Because it's the most beautiful place on earth. Well, who did that? God did that because he got land and sea coming together. Complementary, different things brought together in this beautiful picture. Night and day. Sunrise, some of the most beautiful things we see in our life will be a sunrise or a sunset. It's also the way I kind of spot as you're getting older. You start to just gaze at sunsets and take pictures and then send it to your kids. You're like, I get it, Mom. But I'm there. I love a good sunset. Why? Because it's where night and day come together, and it creates beauty. Heaven and earth. Think of a mountaintop in the sky. Some of the most beautiful things we'll ever see in our life. The Grand Teton National Forest in Wyoming is the most beautiful place I've been. It's these huge mountains to the backdrop of the sky. Who did that? God did that. Where does sex fit as we think about how we view the world? It fits into that creational story. Because after God creates all that, all that beauty, we land where Jimmy read. Verse 18. Then God said, it's not good that man should be alone. Land has the sky, heaven has the earth, sea has the land. Man does not have his complementary other. Therefore, we will create woman, and the two shall become one flesh. Sex reveals God's creational intent. One guy says it shows his diversity and union. Diversity means two different things. Union, where they come together. Marriage is the diversity of male and female. And the union, when they come together, ultimately seen and witnessed and experienced in the act of sexual intimacy. That's where God fits, or sex fits, according to Scripture. One author says this, The man and the woman together are a symbol of something which is profoundly true of creation as a whole. The coming together of male and female is itself a signpost pointing to the great complementarity of God's whole 
creation, ultimately of heaven and earth coming together. This at its core is what we have that the culture doesn't have, is where does sex fit in the grand scheme of things? It fits into this beautiful creation that God is putting together. They were naked and unashamed, and it was beautiful. But I also had Jimmy read Revelation 21. Why? Because sex now is in this complicated, sinful world. But God's design for marriage and for sex is still the same, to show his beauty. And now also he shows his beauty in his redemptive love. So Revelation 21, I want you to go there. It's where Jimmy read. What is the end of all things? What are we hoping for? What are we longing for? What's the thing that all of us want to happen, even if we haven't articulated it? It's Revelation 21, verse 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was sea no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Here's the line. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, I'll add, finally, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Sex points towards creation, but sex also points towards recreation, restoration, redemption, where God comes after us, even in our sin. And one day, all things will be made new. What is sex according to the Bible? It's these two things. Sex creates, points to a greater truth, a creational beauty, and a covenantal commitment. It is a temporary gift that points to an eternal reality of God's creative, beautiful, poetic hand in creation, but also his pursuing love in covenant commitment. Sex is a big deal. Not a big deal in the way the world talks about, like it's the pressing thing that all of us are thinking about. Big deal in what it says about how this world actually Works. It's governed by a God who loves us, who created as a gift for us. And even in marriage, he keeps pointing back to this. Ephesians 5, he tells the husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, as he gave himself up for her, so that one day he might present back to her holy and blameless, without blemish. That's what sex is. It's these two things coming together as one in beauty. It's a biblical thing. Sex is a good gift. And here's, if you grew up in church and you grew up in a church where sex was icky or gross, I get that. I've talked to a lot of people who have to navigate all these sort of misconceptions. But it's not. It's icky and gross used outside of what God wants, but God created it. He made it beautiful for us to enjoy. But let's just be honest. Like, we don't live in the reality of Genesis 1-2 and Revelation 21 when our minds think about sex. We live in a broken, shattered world that's been reconfigured according to what the culture says. This takes us to our second question. What is sex according to our cultural moment right now? Like, oof. Like, what is... Sex, if you were to kind of pull the great minds, take the Bible out of the equation, and just ask people, what is sex? Here's what I just want to make sure we're aware of. Every culture in every moment has to define it, and it's always shifting based off that culture. Here in the West, we kind of have what C.S. Lewis calls a chronological snobbery. Like, we've landed 
at the ultimate answers because we are so enlightened. No, we're just another chink in the chain trying to answer the question using broken tools. But we've landed on an answer. What is sex according to our culture? Just shortly, like where, we, where the Bible started, you know, 2,000 years ago, what was the sex culture back then? It was a lot more permissible back then. Like Greek culture was, you had homosexual sex everywhere. Pretty much everything was fair game. There's a great SNL skit I don't, with Justin Timberlake about the Greek view of sex. It's hilarious. You go watch it on your own time. But it's just anything's open. It's all fair game. Because that was the, the Greek answer to what is sex. It was all about pleasure. The body is just this tomb. Let's just enjoy it while we can. And then Greco-Roman culture and Romans kind of took over. And what did the Romans do with the sex culture? They kind of made it more about power. Like men, married men, married men with some sort of status were supreme. And everyone else was kind of there to serve them. So like, I'm not going to make you do this, but all the single girls in here, if you were to stand up, this was a Roman gathering. Any married man could go and have his way with you according to the norms that the Bible, the New Testament specifically, was originally written in. And then younger boys and slaves and servants were all kind of at the mercy of men who had the power. And that's not the way it is anymore. That's not the way it is today. Why? Because of Christianity. Because Christians started to saturate and infiltrate Rome, and their sexual ethics started to kind of eke out into culture, into where we land today. We now have this American sex culture, which takes stuff from the Bible and doesn't give it credit. And they want to say, here's what sex is. It's whoever... Whatever consenting adults want to have this thing for pleasure, it's their right. That's the culture's, that's where we've landed as a culture. If you're an adult in this room, whatever adult means, and you need some pleasure, and there's another consenting person or persons, you guys should be able to do whatever you want to do. Don't listen to those repressive, oppressive Christians. Don't listen to that guy saying, thus saith the Lord. I would just encourage, and I get, I've got to work on my tone and make sure I'm not always fired up. But people in this room that have landed on a cultural sex ethic that is not in line with Scripture, I would just encourage you to do some research and realize that we did not get to this moment in history based off a bunch of people who thought like you. We got to this point in history mostly through Christians in pagan cultures and the best of Christianity impacting areas of culture, especially sex. And then we get to a moment now where we get to kind of throw it out and say, ah, we we all just got to love each other. That's a Christian thing. That's not a Roman thing. That's not a Greco-Roman thing. That's a Christian thing. Women should have rights. That's a Bible thing. That came from here nowhere else. No Roman guy stood up and said, you know what, guys, stop. I think we need to stop this stuff with all the women in our culture. Nobody said that. It was Christians. And we landed at a better sexual ethic in some ways, but also a more loose and free and sinful sexual ethic. So if I had to summarize, that's what it is. Sex is just for pleasure between consenting people. The gospel says sex is for one husband and one wife, 
and it points to a greater reality. Culture, it ends on itself, so enjoy yourself. Christians, it points to something greater and keep it within the marriage bed between one man and one woman. That's what the culture says currently. Now, how do we as a church walk into this reality? How do we navigate this? How do we counter culture in the areas of sex? Like I said, some of us are in here with all sorts of baggage. And we kind of limp into here, and we limp into any sexual conversation. And I get that. More and more as I talk with people, we also walk in here without much of a biblical conviction foundation to stand on in the area of sex. Because the world is loud. We get church once a week. We get all this noise here, and then truth, where we, the places we can find truth become more and more minimal and less and less a part of our normal routine. Like my wife and I are talking about just being a young lady these days and the temptation to look a certain way. And I was like, what was it like for you in high school? And she was like trying to go back, like what she compared herself to. And this is going to age us, but it was like a Mariah Carey CD. She's like, (laughs) if I felt insecure about myself, it's because Mariah Carey looks so darn good on that one CD I bought at the record store, which ain't a thing anymore. Fast forward to today, every girl in this room is up against every filter created on every app, every social media outlet. Every possible woman in the world is now your competition, and they have everything at their beck and call to prove themselves better than you. That sucks. That's the world we live in, this loud, wow, here's what sex is, here's what you need to look this way. And we can't turn back the clock and say, well, let's go back to Mariah Carey days, although I wish there was more Mariah Carey. It's how do we live in this moment now that God has placed us? So how are we going to counter culture? Here's what we're going to do. I got a few things, and then we'll pray and wrap up. The first one is we will remember that we have the best story and the happiest author. Eugene Peterson, I just read his biography, but he he got in a fight with his publishers over the word blessed. He wanted to translate it lucky because he was in these kind of blue-collar towns. And whenever something happened in someone's life, they said, ah, I'm so lucky. So that was their way to equate happiness. And I get I could use joy there, but I think it's happy. God is happy. Sex was created by a happy God. For his people to enjoy. We have the story and we have the author. Nowhere else has that. We have the one who created it and he created it with a smile on his face. Thinking about us getting to enjoy it. And at the smile on his face knowing he was going to have to correct and redeem and come after us with his grace as we screwed it up. Either way he's happy to do it. Like a lot of us just have to remember. God is happy. He's joyful. It took me 23 years of life to figure that out. Grew up Catholic, got saved, became a Christian, whatever words you want to, gave my life to Jesus, and I still did not have a happy God in my mind. I had a God who had forgiven me of my sins, and I was grateful, and I had eternity to look forward to. But as I thought about God, it wasn't happiness. It wasn't joy. There wasn't this joyful disposition on his face. We have a happy God. And I was 23 years old reading by myself, Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. And it blew my mind like nothing since has. Oh, at 
the joy that I want in life, I don't have to go around God for. I have to go towards God to get it. That's where I get my joy. from. Whether it's sex or food or success or adoration, whatever it is, it's found fully in God. And the world does not believe that. And we don't believe that. And we have to remember, God is happy and joyful. And he created sex. This temporary, sweet, wonderful gift that points towards greater, greater realities. God is joyful. And he's created sex for us. You know, as I prayed through this, I've thought a lot about singles because it's off limits for you right now. And for some of you, you might be called to a life of it's off limits for good. And Paul says that's a good thing because you can devote your life to the Lord. But here's what singles need to remember. The thing that sex is pointing towards, the thing that sex is saying, hey, look this way. This is what this is actually about. You already have fully in Jesus. Complete communion, union with Christ. Regardless of your sin, it's been covered, and now you are one with Christ. You are one with Christ. As I think about it, you have the movie. You may not get the preview, but you already have the movie. And I get people can say that flippantly. I'm not saying it flippantly. I'm saying, like, as you preach to yourself, that's something you got to remember. The thing that I might get one day in marriage that I'm hoping for is simply a preview to something greater. And I already have the greater. It's communion with Jesus. That's the first thing. Second thing, what about boundaries? This is where the culture fight begins. This is where we go toe-to-toe. This is where we wrestle to the mat, choke each other out. We will, how are we going to do this? Because what we believe and what the world believes do not line up. We will be clear about the boundaries God gives us. What do I mean by that? Christians are always on a pendulum. Everybody's on a pendulum, but it seems like the church is always just kind of. And there's this like fundamentalist thing that we all look back to. Yeah, my church had too many rules. Da, 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 so we want to swing it this way. And like, that's not about the rules. And it's not about. I feel like the pendulum is over here as we talk about God's rules and prohibitions and boundaries in life. Because we don't want to be that, whatever that is. So we, oh, no, it's not. It's not helpful to be ambiguous where the Bible is abundantly clear, though. It's not loving to be ambiguous where the Bible is abundantly clear. So in our membership packet, here's what we say. In a world that validates nearly every consensual expression of sex and sexual desire, we believe that God intends sex to be only practiced within marriage, and prohibits any sexual activity outside of this one man, one woman covenant. Therefore, pornography, adultery, premarital sex, and same-sex sexual activity are prohibited. Words matter. We've got to be clear in our words. And God says no to a lot of stuff. But he says, no, like I think about my own life. Where do I have these intense prohibitions? Like, where do I get really fired up about saying no or putting walls up? And it's around stuff I really love. And it's around stuff that's really dangerous. So my boys, I have these walls that I think about in dangerous situations. 
As I think about cars, I think about the poisons I have for my yard. I put them as high as I can because I don't want my kids anywhere there. God, as he talks about sex, he knows he created this fire that he gave to us to be used within a certain way. And he also knows that fire gets out of control real quick. So again, what does the Bible say about sex? It's great and it's good and it's powerful fire, but God also gives these very specific prohibitions. We've got to be clear about it. And I just want to walk through a few of these. Premarital sexual activity. The Bible calls it fornication, which is an old school word. But I like that word better because it kind of says what you're doing isn't what God intended. And like if we were to say, all right, let's filter out this church based off those of you who practice this, this church would be thin quick. We'd have like three people left in here. That doesn't mean we go back and get fuzzy with the wording, though. It just means we say, that's what he said. I didn't do it that way. I'm sorry. Russell Moore, who's this great ethics guy through the Southern Baptist Convention, I think he used to be. Now he, you know, he writes on the public sphere and how Christianity is supposed to interact. And he talks about fornication and adultery. And he kind of says fornication can be a lot more dangerous and hurtful than adultery. Here's what he says. Fornication isn't merely premarital. Because premarital is the language of timing. And with it, we infer that this is simply the marital act misfired at the wrong time. But fornication is both spiritually and typologically a different sort of act from the marital act. That's why the consequences are so dire. Fornication pictures a different reality than the mystery of Christ presented in the one flesh union of a covenantal marriage. Listen to this. It represents a Christ who uses his church without joining her, covenantly and permanently to himself. The man who leads a woman into sexual union without a covenantal bond is preaching to her, to the world, and to himself a different gospel from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, this isn't let's beat people up, but let's let God speak Let's be weighty where he wants us to be weighty. And I think this is one that we need to hear. Sex before marriage is not sex. And it's not God's best. It's not what God designed. It's a sin. What about pornography? Same thing. Breaks the union. And I don't have to, you know, I asked some friends that are preachers, how much do you need to use science and data and all that kind of as you talk about sex? And they're like, it's pretty blatantly obvious. I mean, we could. The word in the New Testament for sexual sin is porneia. Whenever you read sexual immorality, fill in the word porneia. Flee from all porneia. It's like an umbrella term for all sex that's not the Genesis 2 kind. Flee from all porneia. I googled I'm like, I wonder what the dictionary says pornography is. It says this, printed or visual material containing the explicit description or display of sexual organs or activity intended to stimulate erotic rather than aesthetic or emotional feelings. Pornography is wrong. It's not what God wants. What else? What about adultery? This is in the top ten commandments. Number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
Once you've joined up in this one flesh union, male, female, you shall not find your sexual activity, fulfillment, uh, romance, intimacy outside of that union. Then Jesus comes along and like makes it even more intense. And if you ever thought about doing any of that, you're an adulterer. Gosh. You're like, man, this is intense. Why is God so intense? Because his original intent for sex is far better and bigger and more beautiful than what we're letting it be. That's why. What about same-sex sexual activity? This breaks the land and sea, heaven and earth, day and sky, man and woman of what creation was supposed to be. It's supposed to be complementary things coming together in union. And same-sex activity, homosexual behavior, breaks that. Now, here's where we, we have to be sort of wise and kind of delineate a little bit. The most fired up I get as I talk about homosexuality is not with homosexual friends I've had. I, one of my former bosses was a homosexual. I helped her with some funeral stuff for a family member. I loved her to death. It wasn't like I was coming at her all the time. But in the church, this is where the danger comes. When people claiming the name of Christ now want to say, This is not really a sin. You guys have misheard God in this. So like I had a coffee with a gal not too long ago, Christian gal. She's like, I'm gay now. Like, okay, thanks for telling me. And I, you know, kind of tell me about your story. And then one of the things is she also wanted to show me sort of theologically how she landed on it's okay now. And I hesitate to give you this because it's a terrible, I'll just tell you. <laughs> this guy got famous with a YouTube clip five, ten years ago. Matthew Vines, young kid, got up in his church and said, here's why all the passages in the Bible that talk about homosexuality are not really talking about what the church is saying. Therefore, God is affirming of homosexuality. And she slid the book across, and I'm like, yeah, I figured that, because it's like, easy access. It doesn't take much mental thought to get. And here's the thing. Whatever you want to be true, you will find a way to make it true. That's just human nature. I'm that way. It's like my kids with video game Fortnite rules. Like, if, if, they, if it's going to work in their benefit, they're going to enforce the heck out of it. But if it at all benefits their brother, oh no. I've been doing research, Dad, and it says... But just to give us, like, the the danger is Christians changing God's definition of sin. My goal as a pastor, my hope for this church is not to go in the world and carry banners and tell everyone where they're wrong. But it's to be refined by God's word, as Chandler read out of Psalm 19. And all the passages that talk about homosexuality prohibit it. I'll just give you a couple. First Timothy says this. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Affirming of what Moses said in the Old Testament, that homosexuality is not God's intention. It's outside the boundaries that God has given Romans 1 is the famous one, and people like to say Paul is sort of homophobic, but he he talks about it this much, and he talks about sin in general this much, but here's where he brings it up. 
Romans 1, 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God's clear on our boundaries. And as I prayed through this, I said, I got to stay, say what God says. Because the way I navigate this in this world with my neighbors is far different than being the authoritative, this is what God says. I get, we're going to get to, we got to have some wisdom. But God has clear boundaries. Here's the next thing. We will flee from sexual sin in our own lives first. Before we pick up our banners, before we go towards our family members, before we go running down our streets, we will do business with ourselves and our own issues. Paul says, what are, you, what are you worrying about the sexual immoral out there for? You guys need to clean up, purge, he says, the sexual immorality in the church. And then you can be used for God's glory and design. How are we going to flee from sexual sin? Just remember, I've said this a lot, but if you're newer, I want a gospel culture here. I want gospel answers But if gospel answers doesn't seep down and create a culture that feels like the gospel, we're missing something. What's a gospel culture? It has the gospel truth, safety, a safe place to wrestle with all this, and the time required to actually become more like Jesus. As you think about sexual sin in your life, my life, like what have I fully repented of and dropped and left behind? Very little of my sexual sin in terms of my inner thoughts it's still there and i'm like gosh take this what else do i have to do and if we're this church where it's like here's the deadline you figure it out by thursday or get out of here that's not in line with the gospel or jesus invitation to come to him rosario butterfield is this author who was in a lesbian relationship she's this cambridge professor super smart but she talks about why she's not a fan of conversion therapy and all these things where you take a homosexual person and kind of convert it out of them. She says, the gospel invites us into dying to self, and that is a lifelong journey. I'm always going to struggle with this, she said. When I'm tempted sexually, it's always going to be towards another woman. And my husband knows that, and God knows that, and I know that. And that is my lifelong journey of putting to death my old self. We need time. We also need people. I'll just ask you this. What people in this church or around you, Christians, brothers and sisters, know your specific sexual struggles? If, like the way Satan gets us is he gets us isolated, and then he comes after us, and we're done. Who knows your struggles? And then protection. What are you doing to actually protect yourself? from sexual sin that you and I struggle with. Like, think of all the areas. Pornography. I'm so sick of hearing guys talk about their struggle with pornography, and then I ask them, well, what are you doing about it? I'm praying about it. Well, I'm going to punch you, and then after I punch you in the face, let's talk about some real boundaries we could put up. Like, I have stuff on my devices that men get, and they see what I'm looking at. And I prepared a sex sermon this week, so he's going to be like, all right, Josh, let's talk about all your... (laughs) 
But here's the other thing, and this, this is where I just feel like the old guy, but I think our media choices, I'm always kind of shocked to hear what people watch. It's like, you're not watching pornography, but it ain't far away. Well, it's a great story. All right. What about in the terms of adultery and just protecting your marriage? Again, here's another old, older guy statement. I don't get young married people that have social media accounts where they still have access to all their past relationships. Like, again, this isn't like, turn to 2 Timothy. You, therefore, get rid of the Instagram. <laughs> but I've done a lot of marriage counseling. And social media does not help your marriage one iota. It may help your business, and I'm not anti, but as far as your marriage, I have seen zero evidence that it improves sex and intimacy in marriage. Quite the opposite. It leaves doors open that we can walk through. And what about premarital sexual activity? Like we're a bunch of singles and dating and engaged. Like have you said what you're doing is wrong? Have you confessed it? And are you fighting in a good direction. Like again, we can go out there and rail the world on all their sexual deviancy. But if we don't do business here, that's not how the church works. Here's the fourth thing. We will use wisdom and, co- and courage as we speak into the culture. And as I've, Here's what I mean by that. We have to know our convictions. So here's what I know. As far as homosexuality, premarital sex, uh, pornography, and all these sort of out of bounds according to Scripture, we're all on different spectrums of where we land. I don't know. I would just say, press into what the Bible says is the conviction you should have. Like in your heart, establish in your heart what is right, what is wrong. That's the first step. And then second step is, there's going to be moments where I have to speak this conviction. It's not all the time. Like, especially as a Christian, we moved into our neighborhood, our next door neighbors, they finally kind of opened up to us, and they said, we were so scared that a pastor moved in because we thought you were going to hate our nephew. Like, oh, I hate you. I never met you, let alone your nephew. <laughs> well, he's gay, and pastors hate gay people. So it's like, I don't turn that off and disbelieve that, but I prayerfully think about, when is it necessary for me to speak this? As a parent, it's always necessary to build up our kids in the way of the faith. But like with my family members that are gay, every family gathering, I'm like, all right, gather around. I just want a reminder. We all know where I stand on this, right? Not put the birthday cake away. Let me make sure. No. You got to speak it. Colossians says using gracious words of wisdom. But then we also have to figure out how to navigate this when this presses on stuff. And I think you also pray like, like, I think about pornography in my house. I have much stricter guidelines with my kids. My oldest thinks I am the worst because I won't give him a phone. Fine, I will wear that badge for a long time if it keeps you a little bit away from this for a little bit longer. Like, we've got to make decisions that the world thinks are crazy, that our kids think are crazy, that our spouses think are crazy. Like, a friend of mine in Gilbert has a flip phone. And those that know him, it's because of pornography. Like, you are a nerd. Well, I want a good marriage, and I want to have sex the way God wants me to have sex. 
So I have a flip phone. But here's the other thing, the last thing in this area is you have to just be ready to kind of be punched in the face because mostly you're going to lose this battle, especially this battle more than the gender battle because it's already in laws. Supreme Court has spoken. Like we're not on the winning team as far as majority votes. That doesn't mean we bow out. We just know like this is a losing battle. Next thing, we will have a high standard for sex and marriage as a church. Like, we will honor people that have been married a long time. Steve, Marsha, Steve are in here. They've been married 53 years. Marsha, God bless you. But, like, we want to honor the things that God honors. Long, healthy marriages. Not perfect, but lasting marriages. We will challenge and correct marriages that have just started. So you young marriages, we want you in the Young Marriage Club. We want you on a good foundation. Then as I think about singles in this room, here's my heart breaks all the time for this demographic, young single girls. Because you're in a rough spot dating-wise. You have very little options on the table. So mentally, I know this because I, I don't have any daughters, but I have a lot of girls that have been in my ministries, and they start to just lower the bar until somebody kind of kind of step over that very low bar they've created. And I would just encourage you, part of your faith journey is going to be praying to God to bring you somebody that meets a high standard, that doesn't just get over this tiny little standard that you put in your mind. Like it's, like, it's just gross how dating works today. Guys don't have to do any work. Like, a text, like, how much work is this to get a girl to do however much a girl's willing to do for the attention that she got from a guy that put in this much work? If you stay in the world long enough, that becomes your standard. You keep coming around church and godly men, you say, I think that's what I want. And you pray for it. And you pray towards it. And then finally, sex is not the ultimate thing. One day, sex will come to the end where I understand Jesus' words saying, there is no marriage in heaven the way you understand it. Which means sex must be pointing us to something bigger. And the thing that's bigger is intimacy. We remember that the thing that we all want is Intimacy. Sex is a picture of that. And here's what's beautiful about sex. It's these two beings exposed fully in front of each other, and they come together and embrace. There's this quote from Ray Orton. He says this, There they are, Adam and Eve, together in the Garden of Eden, naked and sexual and both completely happy. And in that place of permanent belonging and gentle acceptance, the woman isn't the only one naked and vulnerable. She's not exploited there. She's not shared there. And she's not sold there. They're both naked and not ashamed or degraded or used. Here's a line that gets me. But they're both comfortably at ease, fully accepted, and tenderly embraced. Genesis 2 points to that reality. Revelation 21 points to this reality with all of our junk built into it. Like the most embrace I've ever had has been in the local church. And the most guilt and shame I bring into the local church is a lot of my past sexual sin. And intimacy is somebody seeing at you with all your junk, all your mess, and saying, I see you, I see all of it, 
and I still welcome you in. And that's what we get to enjoy within the confines of marriage between one man and woman. And we get to enjoy it in a a broader sense in the church where we have been welcomed by Jesus. None of us come in here with this thing figured out. None of us leave this message without some guilt, some shame, some... uh, We're all implicated. So how do we build ourselves up? How do we leave here stronger? We don't. We just remember that he has welcomed us in by his grace. And Paul says in Romans, therefore you who have been welcomed like that, you sexual sinners, you deviant, you fill in the blank. You have been welcomed in, not partially until you figure it out, but wholly. You therefore welcome one another as Jesus has welcomed you. We are a messed up bunch, but he is good, good, good to us. Let's pray. Father, we confess that something so intimate and so uh, unique to each of our experience is not something that'll be fixed, solved, set aright in one message. But God, we trust that every time we open your word and we let your spirit speak to us through your word that we are conformed and formed more into your image. And that's what we want, especially in this area of sex. We don't want to be formed by the culture and the world. We don't want sex to be this thing that's simply for pleasure that has left a lot of us not better off but worse off. We confess that sex points to a better reality. That your creational masterpiece included this one man, one woman coming together. In your Genesis 2.0, your revelation story says that even with our sin, you come and you embrace us once again. And heaven and earth will be one. And everything that sex and intimacy and marriage has been pointed to will be realized one day. But until then, we live as your children who are trying to navigate this world. So God, in this room specifically, I pray for the people that need conviction of what you say, give them conviction. God, for the people in this room that need healing in the areas where they've crossed boundaries or people have crossed boundaries with them, I pray they would tangibly feel your welcome this morning. God, for all of us, I pray that we would walk out of here with a confidence that is not of our own. We don't strut out of here because we figured out it. We walk out of here confidently because we know you and we know that you welcome us in. So God, thank you for speaking to these areas. Thank you for your goodness to us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.